I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Wilson, the founder of School Moves and the author of the book, The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Transforming Classrooms One Nervous System at a Time. Lots to learn today. Awesome conversation. And then, by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmoletto.com slash reviews, and went in there and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? Maybe say something nice, and uh, how about five stars? Hmm, that'd be so cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing, and enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Leto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Leto. Deborah is the founder of School Moves and a graduate from the University of Southern Queensland Professional Studies Program. Her dissertation uncovered attributes of successful collaboration between occupational therapists and general education teachers working together in the classroom environment. Dr. Wilson is a reading specialist who possesses teaching credentials in the areas of biology, physical education, multiple subjects, and reading and language specialist. Deborah has taught at the college, high school, and elementary levels. Deborah consults with districts focusing on collaboration between support staff and teachers. For over 20 years, her workshops have provided evidence-based strategies to support all students in the classroom. She is the author of numerous books and instructional materials integrating neuroscience and neurodevelopmental activities into academics. Her latest editions are her two books published by Norton, The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Transforming Classrooms One Nervous System at a Time, and the Polyvagal Backpack, Classroom Activities for Focused, Joyful Learning. Deborah's experience as the mother of a child with a constellation of challenges enhances her understanding of children who learn differently and have a difficult time fitting in with their peers. Our focus today is Deborah's book, The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Transforming Classrooms One Nervous System at a Time. Dr. Wilson, Deborah, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hello, and thanks for having me here today. Oh, it's great to have you here. And uh, so let's start talking about uh, this, Deborah. We're focused on your book, The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Transforming Classrooms, One Nervous System at a Time. Could you start by explaining what polyvagal theory is? Polyvagal theory is the science of safety and connection. It was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges. Dr. Porges wanted to explain to us how the autonomic nervous system works. And also he teaches us that there's a bit of predictability to the autonomic nervous system. What we think of as subconscious, we can actually bring consciousness to it and become more active operators of our nervous systems. Cool. And, and it's, it's really awesome because I knew nothing about polyvagal before I started reading. And this is, this is really cool as I started learning about this, reading your book. Um, but I got to ask you, so what made you say to yourself, I have to write this book? I mean, what, what made you say, that's it, that's, that's my next topic? <laughs> oh, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a loaded question. I really didn't even have it on the radar. I had no idea, like you, I didn't know anything about polyvagal theory. A social worker took one of my online courses and she contacted me. 
And she said that the version of the autonomic nervous system I was using in my course wasn't as accurate as it can be. And the new science is telling us that it operates a little bit more differently than we would think of in terms of on and off and homeostasis regulation. And so we had a nice conversation and she introduced me to Deb Dana. Deb Dana is a social worker in the mental health field, and she translated Dr. Porges's very technical work into practical application for mental health therapists. I asked her to be on my show, my monthly show, and we started talking and I got so interested in what she was saying and could see how helpful this information could be for those of us in education. And one thing led to another. She introduced me to her editor, who in turn introduced me to the education editor. I submitted a chapter, and I didn't submit it as the expert. I submitted it as I'm going on this journey. I'm curious, how can we take polyvagal theory from the mental health field and the field of trauma to everyone? It felt like for me, as I used it personally in my life, parenting my daughter and just in my everyday relationships, I saw the value of it. And I thought we need to just bring it into the classrooms for all students and all teachers and administrators, not just for students who have experienced trauma. Gotcha. Well, it is an, you know, the more you, whether you knew nothing about it in the beginning, once someone, an educator, a teacher, a, a administrator starts reading it, you'll start understanding why you should know a little bit about it. And so what I'd like you to just talk towards is the idea, you know, why should an educator want to know more about polyvagal principles? And, and, and more than that, why would they want to incorporate them in the classroom? I think we can all agree that today's classrooms are pretty unpredictable and we have a lot of diversity. And what I loved about learning about polyvagal theory and bringing this into education is that it brings some amount of predictability. The nervous system responds in a hierarchical way. And once you understand that hierarchy, you can predict where students are going next. You can predict where you're going next when, when you have a threat, when you're feeling activated. And also our views from those different nervous system states change based on our states. And I just felt like this was really good, practical, even though the title polyvagal theory doesn't sound that practical and sounds very scientific, the application of it is very practical in our classrooms. And you're so right. Like I said, I didn't know anything about it. And as I'm reading it, I'm going, yeah, I kind of wish I'd known that when I was teaching. And, uh, and that was, uh, it, it, it's awesome. And especially the more you get to know about it. And there's these principles that, that you talk about and, and discuss, and we're going to go through a couple of them. Um, but, uh, and so what I want to, what I'd start with is this. I mean, I would think that most teachers know very little about their nervous system. I mean, you know, unless there's a reason why most of us are just glad that it's working and uh, that's, 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 it's just there. We know it's there and it's working. All right. And, and the first principle is befriend your nervous system. Can you talk about what's, what the focus is here? Befriend is a term that Deb Dana coined. And I really liked that concept of befriending your nervous system. It's like treating this this inner system as if as if it is a friend and being less critical, judgmental, being more kind and more curious. And when we understand our nervous system, we're able to go through life, negotiate those challenges that are coming at us with a little bit more knowledge about how we know we're going to respond in certain situations 
based on our past experiences. We bring our nervous system and all those experiences in our past into the classroom. Befriending starts with us, and then we model that befriending process for our students. In the book, I really focused on us more so than the students. In book two, I you know bring in more of the activities for the classroom. But in book one, I'm really talking about how do we respond on a daily basis and how do we get to understand our nervous system and recognize when we're starting to become dysregulated. How do we get back to regulation? We're challenged constantly in the classroom. The students are doing their best to pull us down that autonomic ladder, as Deb Dana refers to it, from um, the top of the ladder to the bottom of the ladder. They do the rest. And so it's up to us to recognize it and be able to respond and to be able to access regulating resources that keep us in a regulated state. All right. So let's so let's talk a little about the responses that you're talking about. I mean, there's there's things that might happen um, that you might experience from your body, depending upon the situation or environment you're in. Could you talk about that? I think for your listeners, let's just get right to there's three states, these main nervous system states. There's some blended states as well. But these three states are ventral vagal, sympathetic, and dorsal vagal, and they're hierarchical. So we are, when we're not activated, there's no threat of danger. We are in what we call a ventral vagal state. You can think of a heart with a vent, and that heart, I think of it like if you want to picture something, visualize ventral vagal, it's that heart and it's a vent that's letting in all the good stuff and giving off kind of good stuff. We're socially engaged with other people. We feel safe. We feel connected. We feel free to take risks in life. It doesn't mean we're in a blissful state. Some people think that's like ventral vagal is bliss, like you're meditating, but it's not bliss. It's just you have enough safety on board that you're able to tackle what's coming. You can think cognitively. You can you have your executive functioning online. You're able to say, okay, hmm, this is a challenge. Here's the steps I can take to overcome this challenge, right? So you're not necessarily everything's perfect. And we have this myth in classrooms that all students are going to be on the green path or all students are going to be on that ventral path. We move in and out of regulation all throughout the day. So the next place we're going to go, if we, if our nervous system detects this threat, we're going to go to sympathetic. Sympathetic, almost everybody on your call will know, is fight or flight. We're going to either fight it out or we're going to get out of the danger, right? We're going to get out of the classroom. We're going to, whatever we're going to do, we're going to leave the situation to get safe or to feel safe again. If that doesn't get us out of safety, we go further down into the parasympathetic nervous system, and this is dorsal vagal. So the vagus nerve has ventral vagal and dorsal vagal. It has two branches. That's why the polyvagal piece. And if we're not in ventral vagal, then we move over to sympathetic activation. And if that doesn't work, we shut down into dorsal vagal. Think of a door, and you're shutting the door to the world, and you say, I've had enough. I can't take any more. I'm overwhelmed or the threat of danger is so intense that my body just chooses to shut, just shuts me down to keep me safe. So those are the three states, ventral vagal, sympathetic, and dorsal vagal. And I, and I think as you talk about these in the book and you start, it's easy to start picturing like situations that happen in a classroom that might make a child 
Um, no matter what age you're talking about, because you could be working with adults too, the same thing, yeah. sort of thing that they have these responses and, and whether it's that, uh, you know, something like they're afraid to get in front of the entire class and give their short book report. <laughs> yes. Or it's simply that, uh, you know, or, or it's simply, it's not the right word, or it's that, you know, they have uh, an interaction with another kid and they don't want to have that interaction again or something, or, or do want to have that interaction again, whatever, whatever the case may be that it could cause those responses. I thought that was, it, it all of a sudden made, made me think that this is a cool thing. Wish I'd known more about this. That the key word is befriending, befriending our nervous systems and teaching students too. So in the case of that, you know, student who's getting nervous standing in front of the class, think of how powerful that will be for the student to be able to name their state and say, oh my goodness, I'm in sympathetic fight or flight. I'm angry. I don't want to do this. Why did you make me do this? I don't want to stand up in the front of the class or, or I got to go to the bathroom. I'm out of here. You know, I'm just, I just want to avoid and, and, and there's some science that actually calls this avoiding failure. Like they, they, they're students who are failure avoidant students and they'll do whatever they can to not have to face whatever they have to face. And then this, this same student could be in dorsal vagal where they just shut down. You can't get them up in front of the class. They're collapsed. That threat is so powerful for their nervous system. And what I like about polyvagal theory the most is that it takes the personal piece out. You're not necessarily naming the student. You're saying that student's nervous system is needing X, Y, or Z. That student's nervous system is showing me that they're feeling unsafe. And they're showing that by either activated fight or flight or dorsal vagal shutdown. And we don't always focus on the dorsal vagal shutdown. I, I have a term in the book I call quietly failing. These are the students that sit quietly. They don't cause a lot of trouble, but they're not learning. They're failure accepting. And they don't get a lot of attention. And those are my people. As a reading specialist, I do a lot with those students who are failing and they're quiet and they're shut down and they believe they don't have the skills to learn. And I feel like I want to shine the light more on those students because the loud students get all the attention. And we have a lot of students who hold a lot of potential to do great things in the world that are not seen, that we just overlook. And if we can start looking at their nervous system and their posture and recognizing it as dorsal vagal shutdown, I think that can bring a lot of promise in the classroom for those students to get the help they need when they don't know how to ask for it. That's awesome. Cause I, I know it's, you know, understanding that is, is so important. You can, I mean, it's, you know, I, and I don't know if the story I'm about to relate fits as well. It seems to with me, but I mean, as this, when I was a, a kid and especially when I think about my high school times, when I was doing this more, um, I didn't want to be called to the board. You know, I didn't want other students to have a chance to either, you know, whether imagined or not, the idea that I don't need to be um, heckled or anything like this, seen it done, been there also, and don't want to do it again. So therefore, um, I figured out that some teachers play a game, and the game is called, um, if you look like you're doing your work and doing the things you're supposed to be doing and turn in your work like you're supposed to, and sit kind of sort of, not at the front, not at the back, kind of against the side, but kind of close to the front, 
it's that kind of close that you got to work out the magic with that one. And, uh, and you look at them the whole time and you don't talk to other people and you, you do what you're supposed to be doing. Then they let you be there. It's the ones who either are not doing what they're supposed to be doing or the ones that they think know all the answers, they get cold called to the board. And so therefore I did a very good job of avoiding any of that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, where it came back to haunt me was in my, uh, um, calc, Two class in college when I wish I'd really been called to the board a few times in those algebra classes too because I was making algebra mistakes. <laughs> so hey, you know, but uh, you know, it's that was all based upon not wanting interaction from other students, anybody to say something about what I was doing on the board or something like that. So, but with with that being seen, I said I, I think that you know when you you start thinking about the different situations and the possibilities that people that kids can come up with. You know, even whether it's imagined or not, you know, it's uh, it's powerful to, to understand what you might be experiencing as an adult, as opposed to a kid refusing. Are they really refusing or what they're doing is trying to avoid a situation? And they'd rather argue with you than with the, you know, deal with the kid in the back or whatever. Dr. Porges says there's a bi-directional link between the autonomic nervous system and the mind. I really leaned into that when I was writing the book because I, in other polyvagal books, and I read a lot of books on polyvagal when I was writing this one, a lot of the attention is focused, of course, on the autonomic nervous system. But as a teacher, you know, we like the brain. We're kind of brain biased a bit, right? More so than the body. We're like, ah, the brain's in charge of the ship. You know, it's the captain. And so I wanted to explore this bi-directional link. And I thought, okay, does story follow state or does state follow story? How does this work? Meaning, do I think of something and then my nervous system starts responding to what I'm thinking about, like standing in front of the class? Or do, do I get these rumblings of, um, we call it neuroception, Dr. Porges calls it neuroception, where I'm starting to feel threatened and threats of danger. And then I create the story. Oh boy, if I get up there in front of the class, they're going to laugh at me. I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to look like an idiot. They're going to throw something at the back of my head. You know, we have this, we're creating all these stories about what's going to happen when you get up there, your chalk's going to break. Well, you don't do chalk these days, but whatever, you know, it's going to, something's going to happen and I'm going to look like an idiot up there, right? That is the mind. Yep. <laughs> and then the nervous system starts going, aha, I agree. I'm on board. Yes. Let's get all stressed out about this and let's really dig in. I'm on, on board with this story. So how do we, I don't know, figure out, is it the mind or is it the body and what's going on? What I came to the conclusion was it's, it's both, it's both. And the stories can trigger us. The autonomic nervous states can trigger the stories. The, the, the mind's constantly trying to align what we're feeling and creating a story to make what we're feeling make sense. And that's based on our past, right? Our past traumas. Maybe the year before that student stood up there and that actually happened. So, this, you know, the autonomic nervous system says, I've been here before. I've learned from this experience. So I'm not going to do this again. What we want to do is be conscious of these stories. And I used in the book something called causal layered analysis. Again, another. What, how many syllables can I use in this book? Polyvagal theory, <laughs> causal layered analysis. Nice, <laughs> right? nice. Seriously, I'm not attempting to try to sound smart. It was just that these, these terms work. And if we apply them, they're really powerful. So causal layered analysis is a future studies methodology that I used for my doctoral dissertation. And I 
fell in love with this method of unpacking our narratives. So in chapter two, I talk about a workshop that I did where I walked into a hornet's nest. I walked in, it was the beginning of the school year. The support staff was there. The teachers were in their classrooms. There's no principal to be seen. And I'm giving my presentation about an hour in. It's blank faces that are on their phones. They're on their iPad. Nobody's paying attention to me. It's like the worst nightmare in a classroom, right? You walk in, you got this great lesson planned, and not one kid's listening to anything you have to say. Right? Right. (laughs) So, So my nervous system's like, oh, boy, I'm in trouble here. So I unpack it. I get out my causal layered analysis tools and I say, okay. And I hand out some paper to everybody. I get them into groups and I say, tell me what the heck is going on. Obviously you have no interest in this workshop. I can just pack up and go home if you'd like, (laughs) you know, but I'm here for the day. I'm getting paid for the day. So I'd prefer to stay. So we did this activity where they went through what their narrative, the top, part of it's a layering process, right? It's like, think of a, a, like a little mountain and you're digging into the layers. So top layer, what's going on? So they tell me and then gets to, well, how does the system support or limit this narrative that you have? And then the next layer is what are your beliefs, your assumptions, your worldviews around this narrative? And then the deepest layer where the gold is, is what are your myths? What are your metaphors? or what's going on. And then you reverse it. So they unpack it all and holy cow, I'm reading. We we put them all up, you know, they're on this poster paper and we put them all up and they all go around and read each other's. And, and, And they're all going, oh, no wonder we're in the state that we're in because it was a mess. They'd had a new special ed director every year. They throw everything out, baby with the bathwater, start over again. Nobody listens to them. Nobody, you know, it's those typical Oh, yeah, right. Feelings. There's no support. Nobody cares. Da, da, da. So, and we should be in classrooms helping the teachers right now. Our, we're just trying to get our, it's, you know, the week when you're trying to get everything established and, and they're in this workshop with me. And so then I said, okay, so now let's, let's start at the bottom and let's take your myth and your metaphor and let's find like the, you know, the metaphor was, you know, they're just, they're just number pushers. They don't really care about kids. They don't really care about us. The administration just pushing the numbers. So let's find Let's find a new metaphor. You know, can you together work together and think of something, um, a, a brighter, more optimistic metaphor that brings us that future we're looking for? And so we do this whole process. And it was so interesting to see the shift in the room. We went from sympathetic to dorsal vagal activation, almost everybody, few people were in ventral. I call them ventral learners, curious, open to possibilities, ready to learn. Few were in that state. After we did the activity, they all looked at me and said, oh, I get it. Like we get what they were seen, they were heard, you know, all those terms we use these days. They they felt heard and they were able to get all their concerns out. We didn't solve them. But they got them out and I said, so I have something for you. These things that you wrote up here that were concerned, guess what this workshop's about? Yeah, I'm going to actually have some little tidbits I think you're going to find really helpful nice. for what you're going, what you're dealing with. And so then I had them back and we had a really good training session. And then the the, the special ed director came in afterwards, had heard some good things, came in and sat with me and actually read 
all of the um, the narratives and everything and read the causal layered analysis sheets and said, oh, I get it. So, you know, uh, the CLA is a futures methodology where we say, what do we need to do today to create the future we want tomorrow? How do we create transformative space for change? And I think polyvagal theory, along with causal layered analysis, those two together can be really powerful tools to create that change we're looking for in education right now. That's so cool because it's like, especially when you're given a workshop and you get to use it without them realizing it on them so that you can make the point, this is why you need to use it. So yeah. I need to understand this. I, I love it. I, you know, all right. So that's a lot in principle one. So let's go to principle two, which is safety and connection lead to motivation and engagement. And this alone is just something that, uh, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to, to motivate or engage, you know, get our kids engaged. Um, how does knowledge of this assist the classroom teacher in helping students? It's very difficult for us to be motivated and engaged when we're in a state of threat. When we are in sympathetic and dorsal vagal shutdown, those are the two least motivating and engaging states that we can be in. Then we ask ourselves, so how do we get into ventral vagal? How do we get students into ventral vagal and become ventral learners? We move in and out of these states throughout the day. And I think one of the keys to motivation and engagement is that students have to know explicitly how to access their regulating resources. And regulation comes from inside ourselves outside in the environment and between others in relationships. We become motivated and engaged from the inside, outside, and between. And this is a Deb Dana concept that I really leaned into. I thought it was very interesting when we think about regulation. We tend to always think of sort of self-regulation. We don't think about how we can regulate with our environment and regulate with others in relationships. And when we nourish our nervous system with what it needs, we're much more likely to be focused, to be motivated, and to be engaged. And the more threats and disconnection we feel from the others in the room, the less motivated and engaged we're going to be. The more safe and connected we feel, the more motivated and engaged we're going to be, generally speaking. It's so important to understand because, you know, a lot of times we feel like, you know, if you're working with kids and you might feel like you're beating your head against the wall or might as well be. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's things that you could understand that maybe you can make adjustments to or what is actually going on that maybe you can address without really spending a lot of time thinking, without them thinking you're spending a lot of time on something. I, I, I just think this, these are important. Um, it's so important to understand this. Uh, you know, Part of what you talk about in this section is because you've mentioned regulation. Now, there's something else called co-regulation. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could explain that. Yeah. So co-regulation begins early on in our infancy when we're born into family or caregivers. They teach us how to regulate. They model for us, regulate. They, they're they with us when we're feeling all the feels that we're starting you know, out in the world. So how do we regulate our emotions? How do we understand our senses, the sensory information that we're trying to process? And this is required early on. And this co-regulation follow us into our adult life if we've had that. But students in our classroom, many have not had that co-regulating experience. 
early on. So we're asking them to self-regulate. Self-regulate comes after co-regulation. That's principle three. Or that's, yeah, that's principle two, I know, three. So you have to co-regulate before you can self-regulate. And if you look at all the all the programs we use in school, the, the goal is almost always self-regulation. So I encourage your listeners just to look through all their manuals and count how many times it says self-regulation or self. And if we always focus on self-regulation in the classroom, we miss something that's really important for the nervous system. The nervous system is designed to connect. It is designed to co-regulate with others. And it can be regulated or dysregulated. So our dysregulated state can lead more to dysregulation and our co-regulated state leads more to, to um, you know, positive regulation. And so I'm encouraging teacher staff to add co-regulation as part of what they do every day with their students and offer that for the nervous system as an option. For instance, if they're working on an activity and the students in dorsal vagal shutdown, they're just not going to do the activity. They, if the teacher comes and sits with or just stands with the student and says, what is it that your nervous system needs? You know, start talking in these terms. I know it sounds kind of crazy. Could we actually ever do this in classrooms? But I think we can. What is it your nervous system's needing right now? And the student says, it's just really hard. I don't get what we're doing. I, I missed two days of school. I didn't get the reading done for whatever reason at home. Um, I... I just need some help and support. And then you ask, is there someone in this class with a ventral, who's in ventral vagal with a regulated nervous system who gets this, who's willing to, to sit with and be with? But we, we see that as a weakness in students. If they can't self-regulate, then it's a, they're weak. But think about, Stephen, right now, think about when you've had a challenge in your life. Do you sit in your room all by yourself and self-regulate and try to figure it out? Or do you go find somebody? Do you go like, oh, I got a friend down the street or I got a significant other. I'm going to go sit with them, whine a little bit about the situation and see if they can help me. Few of us ever solve problems by self-regulating. We generally go and find somebody who co-regulates with us and says, you know what? My nervous system's okay right now. I'm not triggered. Sit down, let's talk about it together. And that's the role I think principals need to be when a when a teacher walks in the room and she's just, he or she, it's just regulated. They walk into that room and that principal, that's the place the principal serves or vice principal who was ever there to help as a co-regulating person for them, not judging them on their skills or lack of skills or lack of management skills, but listening and co-regulating and saying, yes, this is hard. Yes, that experience was difficult. That was really a cue of danger to your nervous system. Can you imagine if we actually talked like that? That was a cue of danger to your <laughs> nervous system. Right, <laughs> but you know what? I do it around my house. I'll get off of, you know, an interview with somebody or I don't know, some, some technical thing that I'm working on with somebody. And I'll say, wow, I, I just got a lot of cues of danger from that person. Like, so we have this social engagement system where we're always looking at that person for, are we safe here? And what I'm hearing on YouTube, watching videos of teachers quitting is they don't feel safe to even go sit down and talk with the person of power. That's, that's so rough. Cause that's, you know, that's one of the things, one of the things I kind of try and talk about with um, teacher 
teachers who, whether they're new or whatever level they are, is that if, if you're not receiving the type of assistance in an area where you would feel safe, I mean, I wouldn't have had these words to use before, but that's it, literally it where, you know, there's, you can, you know, there's some trust there they, that you're going to have support or you're going to be helped or whatever when you need help that you've got someone to go to. I mean, it, it, that it's important that maybe you need to, to find a different school because sometimes, you know, they don't realize that, uh, you know, that's, you don't have to settle for that, <laughs> um, but don't Absolutely. leave the profession. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not all that way. It's, it's, you got to go, go to where it, it's mm-hmm. nice. I, you know, it's funny. I learned, I, you know, it's funny when, when you have this thing about, you say, Hey, I, you know, I'm your principal. And when I'm in my office and the door's open, then that means you're welcome to come on in. Okay. So as a principal, you learn that when you have your door open like that and they come on in and you go, oh, why do I have my door open? <laughs> but not, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not a problem. The, but the point Man. is, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the point is, is that um, one of the things that I learned was that a lot of times when they do come to see you like that, they're taking a, a lot into their their you know their uh, intestinal fortitude. I don't know how else to say they're they're being strong. Many of them, not all of them. There's some that would come in your door, even if it was <laughs> bar <laughs> right. chained and locked, and you're in there. Go away, go away. <laughs> um, but but you know, one of the things that uh, I learned rather quickly is that sometimes when some of them came to your door and said, "Can I see you for a minute?" That there's something going on in their world. They really need a chance to talk with somebody, and and so you need to say, "Come on in, let's talk." So. And something I learned from Deb Dana that I really love is she says, can we um, acknowledge your state first and then tell your story? So as a principal, you could, you could say, what state are you in right now? I'm sympathetic, but then, you know, it's charged, right? You know, there's a lot of amped energy. It's mobilized and it's disorganized. And so I have like principals have these like three pound sandballs and they just say, stand up for a second. Let's play catch. Let's just, you know, I use some sensory stuff, you know, let's, nice. because let's, let's organize some of that mobilization first. If you tell your story from sympathetic, it's going to be everybody's my enemy. Nothing's working. It's awful. You know, if you tell the story from dorsal vagal, it's nobody cares. What I do doesn't matter. I quit. Right. That's a dorsal vagal. So if you can get them to tell the story from ventral, that's a place where they'll go, oh, I see possibilities. Oh, I saw something that I didn't see before. Sometimes you'll just sit there and listen. And I know my significant other just listens and I'll say, "Okay, great. Thanks. And I leave. And he's like, I didn't say a word like it was just the sitting and listening. And then I I felt the shift. I felt the shift to ventral. And now I'm ready to go off and do what I need to do. So I think asking students even when they're really upset and they come you come in out of recess or the hallway or whatever okay i can see you're upset name your state right name your state tell me where you are right now because that warned that's that's a cue of safety for me am i dealing with somebody who's really amped and who's ready to hit or whatever, or am I dealing with somebody who's just shut down? There are are different views from those states, and there's different ways we respond from those states. That's so awesome, especially because I just, I didn't have the words to explain it, but uh, um, it was funny, uh, 
as a high school principal in this one place, I, I hired some people to, uh, uh, a gentleman to uh, um, ride in a golf cart during the day. And, you know, his job was to um, keep kids out of the parking lot, keep, you know, people wandering across the campus from the community. And, and uh, basically, you know, the idea that people would see somebody is wandering the campus. So it's not a good place to walk onto um, if you have no business here. And uh, I was dealing with something one day and he said to me, he goes, you know, Steve, because if ever you just need a break, he said, just call me on the radio. And he goes, I don't even have to talk to you. You just, you can ride around the golf cart for a minute. And so I would do that. And I told, I told the faculty, I said, if ever you see me in the golf cart, I said, I'm actually, I've put myself in timeout. <laughs> I said, this is, what I'm doing is this is not about fun and games. I'm out there because I was starting to snip or I was starting to, you know, notice that I was getting angry about things or something like this. And this is meant for me to refocus myself. So it's cool because as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, wow, that, now I understand a little bit more about it. it I just didn't well, have the, 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 the golf it. course was a ventral resource for you. Dysregulation is disconnection from your regulating resources. That's how I see it. And as, as, you, as long as we explicitly know, what do I need? What does my nervous system need? So that was really smart of you to figure out, okay, and, and real cool of, of the guy to offer, come sit with me. You have mobilization, like you're organizing your mobilization. You're in this golf cart. It's going along at a certain pace. There's some rhythm in that. And you have somebody, even if they're not solving all the problems for you, they're with you. They're sitting with you. They're saying, I'm just going to sit and be with and sometimes that's all we need is somebody that, you know, is sitting and being with. And and that was a ventral resource that you would add to your list of when I'm starting to move down my autonomic ladder into sympathetic or dorsal vagal, what is a ventral resource? What are those resources from inside myself? Those can be people that you think about. They might have already passed. They can be strategies you use, mindfulness, meditation, whatever you use that you can do on your own. But then outside is my environment. You got out of your office. You went out of your office outside in nature. And you know what? Number one thing, nature is one of the most regulating things that we can do when we're starting to go down our autonomic ladder. And then between others, you had a cool guy that would say, yeah, I get it. Your job's tough. Right? I oh, see yeah. you. I see how tough this job is for you. So that's all very cool stuff and a great example of how we can use this in every day in our lives and in our classrooms. That's so awesome because that's, you know, it's, uh, I didn't know what to call it. And I just knew that sometimes it's like, because I would tell them, I said, if you see me in the golf cart, I'm not going to be gone long, <laughs> but I literally, it is not a good thing to come talk to me then. <laughs> I said, just, it's, I'm going to be back. <laughs> just understand that I put myself onto that golf cart. So there's just, just give me a break for just a little bit. And uh, it worked very well because you get that little break. And um, my friend who was a golf cart driver, he was uh, um, he was a little nuts because he would drive that thing. Like, it's like, I didn't even know it could go this fast. <laughs> you know, and he'd drive it. To, hey, you want to see something neat? Watch me drive between these poles. Oh, holy crud. You know, so suddenly you forgot why in the world you asked him in the first place. <laughs> but uh, I see that laughter. And that it just, it brings frontal activation back on board, right? You're starting yes. to see things from a different view. It changes your perspective. Laughter is one of the best things. It's the best thing to, for your nervous system. And, you know, it does the same, it, it, it releases the same chemicals as meditation. I think it's a whole lot easier to laugh, as you know, from the, when we first started talking before you started recording, right? We were right. laughing about all these stories, 
So laughing to me is much easier than meditating. I, I can't be still. I'm not one of those quietly still people, which is a blended state of ventral and dorsal. Nice. I want to talk about that just briefly since okay. we're on it. Sure. So quietly still is something we ask a lot of our students. And I want to just make this point that quietly still is a blending of ventral vagal and dorsal vagal shutdown energy. And you have to have a lot of safety on board and you can't have a lot of sympathetic activation um, and be expected to be quietly still. So brings me to the next point, movement. We need students to move. We need more movement. We're, we're kind of, it's a difficult situation when we're constantly asking kids to be quiet. I did a, um, a training for middle school staff and, you know, the students went from class to class to class. And so I asked each teacher, I said, so tell me what you do in your class. Well, the students come in, I have an activity up, they sit down quietly, they get to work and then da, 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 da. Next teacher, and what happens when they get into your classroom? They come in, they sit down quietly. It was this whole thing for every teacher. And then they just looked at each other. They stopped, paused, looked at each other and said, oh, no wonder there's a lot of energy. I mean, we're middle school. What Middle school nervous systems are designed for what? Movement. Right. Chaos. <laughs> mobilization. Yes. Throwing pencils, flicking each other on the head. I mean, <laughs> this is a lot, of, a lot of what we try to control in middle school. So what I try to do in school moves is teach in a way that is always looking at that autonomic nervous system, sympathetic activation, and how can I organize their mobilization? I love this. This is so cool because you know, as, a, as a teacher understanding this, I think it gives you better understanding of why certain things you need to do as opposed to I got to do this or I got to do that. And it's, 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 it's really more along the lines of understanding why there are certain things that you should do, like having chances for them to move and having chances for them to actually physically get up and move, you know, transition maybe between small group discussions or something like this or, or, or table activities. And, you know, that's, that's so important. And so, and so actually this is going to bring me to this, which is, so could you talk about what happens in a classroom where what it looks like, you know, to, just talk about what it looks like if the teacher is following the principles from polyvagal. It's not going to be perfect in bliss. I it just let, let's just get that over with right now. Right? <laughs> There's no magic formula that's going to you know, make make everything wonderful in classrooms. Like we, I always think that the, I marvel at this that the outside world is is dysregulated, but we expect students as soon as they walk in the door to be this, you know, beacons of regulation. <laughs> And they got their backpack full of all those experiences, bringing them into the classroom. And we have a lot of students and we, we can't know what every student's needing at every time. So my point is that a classroom that is utilizing uh, polyvagal theory and, and my book would be saying, how can I help the students become active operation? operators of their own nervous system? So I'm not in charge of it. Nice. <laughs> Help them to say, oh, to understand what state they're in, how they're becoming dysregulated and and offer in the classroom and, and explicitly teach. I mean, for the first week, it's worth it to explicitly have everybody design their own ventral vagal owner's manual. What is it that you can do inside yourself? What is it that you like? What do you have on your own that you already skills you have? 
Like I teach this little dots and squeezes where they press the palms and they squeeze up their arms. They can do that under the desk. Nobody can even see them do it. And it's, you know, a shrug, just shrugging your shoulders resets, helps reset the nervous system. You don't have to do all this deep breathing. You can just shrug your shoulders and it kind of almost does a similar um, to a point. Of course, you know, the deeper meditation does lots of other things, but I want them to actually write this down inside. I can do this by myself with others. I can do this in co-regulation and in the environment I have X, Y, Z available to me. Yes. Like I had a seventh grade teacher who um, he told me they can stand in the back of the room. He has clipboards up on nails and they can go in the back of the room, stand on a balance board, grab the clipboard and do any writing assignment they want. They, you know, and I know now we have different seating. So we become more aware of the need of the nervous system to have different ways of doing this work. We don't all have to sit. The last place I'm going to write is at a desk. You are going to see me with it all splayed out on the couch, on the floor, yes. everywhere, but at a desk. <laughs> Whereas my partner, he's at a desk. He can't work anywhere else but at a desk. So I think we're starting to understand that more and framing it in terms of the nervous system that for students can be a cue of safety. What are their cues of safety? And, and if you have like one student that, you know, we all have in school, you probably can tell me some stories even of you spend so much energy on one student every day. You wish that student would call in sick once, but they never do. They show up every day. Of course. Right. Right. And, and so what I would encourage some, uh, is, is to actually spend a day with that student talking about from, from place to place where they go, what feels safe and what doesn't and what are triggers and what aren't. And you can learn a lot by just saying, let's hang out and let's see what is happening in your day. And, and having them realize, oh, you're responding. It's not, you know, sometimes they're just they're just doing things to get attention and it's not a big, oh, I feel really threatened or in danger, right? We have those students too. But I think acknowledging, is there something we can be doing in the environment, inside that student within himself? I don't know, giving those tools. And they're not just for school, it's for lifelong. It's lifelong learning. We all need these tools to understand and be curious and not be so hard on ourselves when we do things and we think, Oh my gosh, why did I yell? You know, well, because your nervous system felt threatened. I have teachers say, oh, I feel so bad. I didn't have compassion. Compassion is only available in ventral vagal. So if you have a teacher in sympathetic or dorsal vagal and you tell her you got to be more compassionate, mm -mm, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. Compassion is only available in ventral vagal. And let's ask this question to you and to your listeners right now in education. What state do you think the entire education field is in right now? Is it ventral, open to possibilities, curious, you know, even keel? Is it sympathetic or is it dorsal vagal shutdown? What do you think? Well, I think some of them are in dorsal vagal shutdown. I mean, that's a. That's the number one response I get when I ask on an interview. They're just like quitting because it doesn't matter. And what they're asking of me is too much. And I want your listeners to understand with polyvagal, you're not being asked to do anything more. You're actually asked to do less because here's why. We think we have to fix all the trauma. 
we have to have all these students in perfect regulation. And what polyvagal theory tells us is that's not possible. We are going to move in and out of regulation throughout the day, and so are our students. We are going to constantly be moving through these states, and the key is to not get stuck there. The key is to keep one foot in ventral. That is awesome. That is really, you know, it's, as you learn this and you think about it and what you're doing in the classroom and understanding the kids and yourself, by the way, <laughs> um, and how you're, how you're, um, if you're partnering with your nervous system or not. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so important and you can, you can see the more I get in, got into your book and understanding and I'm looking at uh, the different things that would happen at, during the day as a teacher and what you're, you know, I, I like to say when I'm helping teachers with classroom management, I like to say someone needs to be the adult and it needs to be you. Um, and I think that it really has more to do with uh, what you're talking about and understanding when you might have that. Um, yeah, there has to be funny. at least one regulated nervous system in the classroom. I do hope so. And, and, and as you know, in the book, I open with, and it wasn't me. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't mine. But I open with the story of the miserable day on the Arctic tarmac in the snow and morning duty after being up all night with my kids and they were all sick. And I didn't get any sleep. And I walk into my classroom and every student that walked into that door could do nothing right. And I was cranky and crabby and I having a no good, very good, no good day kind of thing. And a little voice from the back of the room said, you know, Miss Wilson, I think you need to do your calming routine. <laughs> right? nice, nice. There was one regulated nervous system in the classroom and it wasn't mine. And that happens. And that's okay. Because if we teach students to befriend their nervous systems, they start loaning their nervous systems to one another, which is another concept I love about polyvagal is that we don't have to always be the regulated person. We can ask somebody, could you loan me yours? Nice. <laughs> I'm not nice. there right now. Oh, and I wanted to mention um, earlier, I looked at when I was writing the book, what, where are the happy teachers? Like, what does the science say about happy teachers? I was really curious about that since everybody seems, you know, a lot of people seem to be a little bit unhappy right now. So where, what creates happy teachers and happy staff? And it brings us back to co-regulation. Do you know that it all comes back to having a staff, having that one person, a best friend that you can go to that's not going to tell your stories to the principal? Right, right. <laughs> that's going to, you know, that you really, really trust. And and when the staff is has more of that trust going on and that collaborative spirit, that makes for a much more positive and I, I call this a befriending school environment. Like I would like to see the term befriending school culture come into play because that's what we're saying. We're saying, how can we all befriend our nervous systems and model that for everybody, our parents, our school board members, you know, everybody, when we're discussing and we're not agreeing on things, we have to learn to keep one foot in ventral. We have to learn to actively take care of our nervous system so that we don't just go fly off the handle into sympathetic or dorsal vagals, just shut down and quit. And if they're thinking of quitting, I say, do it from ventral. Don't quit from dorsal. Move back up your ladder and think about options because there's so much online teaching you can do now. I'm on LinkedIn and I get constantly, hey, we're looking for teachers with this. You know, there's right. so many ways you can still teach that will be nourishing for your nervous system without getting out of the profession altogether. So important, so important, and this is such a cool topic and a and a 
cool book that you've written here and you've got a, a follow-up coming out for it. And, uh, you know, Deborah, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and learn more, where would you send them? Just to my website, schoolmoves.com and spell it S-C-H-O-O-L-M-O-V-E-S without, you know, the I, the other way I spell it, S apostrophe C-O-O-L, but just spell it like you would spell normally school, but schoolmoves.com, they can connect there. There's a lot of information and research and links to my YouTube channel and a newsletter. And I do monthly crowdcast. I do so much free content that I would love for your listeners to be able to take advantage of. That would be awesome. So I'll put that information in my show notes so it's easy for them to find. And I got two last questions that I want to ask you. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? The great question. I really love the concept of keeping one foot in ventral. When I was writing book two, I did this one thing approach to it. I read all these books from these authors with lots of pages. I contacted each of the authors and I said, there's just too much stuff. Like I'm just bombarded with, I don't know where to start as a teacher. Give me one thing. Like of all the things you talked about in your book, what's one thing? It was really neat to get these responses. So Deb Dana wrote me, her one thing is always keep one foot in ventral. And I think that, you know, we can start moving down into sympathetic and fighting and getting out of flight, fleeing, getting out of education or shutting down, thinking we don't, it doesn't matter at all. However, if we keep one foot in ventral, we know where our regulating resources are. We can connect with those regulating resources. And from that place, and that's my chapter seven, is we dwell in possibility, an enormous amount of curiosity. And that's, I think, what we have to do. It is a challenging time, but let's not forget about being curious humans and saying, yeah, this is a little bit challenged, but out of this, good stuff can come and stay open to the possibility. And I love the New York Times bestselling book, Burnout. And the authors, they said um, that that self-care isn't the answer to burnout. It's all of us caring for one another. And I love that thought. Well, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I love the advice. I love the thoughts. And that's good stuff, especially for these times that we are in. I, uh, last question I have for you. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? I love that question. It's Mr. Eggers, and he was my anatomy, biology, physiology teacher in high school. And I actually did acknowledge him in the in the book in the book one. And I reached out to him and found his phone number. I called him up. He's 80 years old. I said, Hey, Mr. Eggers, you know, do you remember me? He's like, Oh yeah, I remember you. And I said, I've written this book. And because of your, he he was just funny. He expected the most out of us. He was just a phenomenal teacher. I wanted to be just like him. And I said that he really got me interested in science and biology and physiology and neuroscience and all of that. It was a wonderful conversation. He said, so tell me what's been going on in your life for the last how many years? He was just great. And we both cried. It was such a moving experience that, you know, for him to know what a difference he made in not only my life, but in a lot of lives. We we weren't a real posh community. We were kind of, they called us the goat ropers. We lived out in the country and we just, you know, we, we, we had a lot of um, trauma and alcoholism and drug abuse and that kind of things in our community. Many of us were from those kind of families. And yet he expected us to, he, he just didn't make excuses for us. We got in there, we 
learned all the anatomy and he did it in such a humorous way that made us just feel like we really mattered. It was amazing. He was an amazing teacher. That's so awesome. Thanks for sharing it. And, and Deborah, thanks so much for talking with me today. I mean, what a powerful focus you have. And thank you so much for sharing your book, The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Transforming Classrooms One Nervous System at a Time. Uh, wishing the best in all you do. Thank you. I hope it's helpful. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and host. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.